Well, good morning to each one of you. I'm going to do something a little different this morning. Um, it's at least different for me. You all know me and you know my tendencies and um, practices, habits. I don't have a 10-page document up here this morning. All I have is an outline <laughs> and the Bible. So um, I have preached this sermon before, but any time that I duplicate sermons, the second one's never the same as the first one. Um, uh, I'd like to look at Psalm 32 this morning. So be opening your Bibles there. Psalm 32. I preached this once before at Bonnaroo just a couple months ago. And some of the points are going to be the same, but it's a different audience. It's a different, um, it's a different day. Uh, I've learned things since then, and it's, it's a good psalm, and it's a good psalm for us. Uh, a little bit about Psalm 32. It's located within Book 1 of the Psalter, you know, that it's divided into five books, and, and this is in the, the first book of, of the Psalms. Uh, as you notice, it is written by David. Most Bibles will have a superscript above uh, the main text, and it says a Psalm of David, so we know that he is the author. We're pretty familiar with David as a person, um, with his place in history and the role that he filled, and um, and even how his example extends to us today, uh, we recognize that he was a son, a son of Jesse. He had seven brothers, one of eight. Um, so, so he was a son. He, he knew uh, what it meant to, to, to be underneath authority, uh, to be even the youngest among brothers. And I'm quite certain that that he experienced some of the same things that you all have experienced, that we've experienced in being uh, in, in, in families with, with the, the fights and the bickering and the, and, the, and the fun even that goes on there. But he was a son. Uh, David was uh, a shepherd. That's one of the first ways that we're introduced to him as. He's out in the field with the flock, kind of a, uh, a demeaning task. Go out there in the field, man. You, it's your turn. Your turn to take over the sheep and to, and to watch over and keep them safe. Take your little slingshot out there and you'll be fine. Um, so so he's, he's a shepherd. He, he's gained some experience there in taking care of, of animals, those uh, that are in need of care. Um, some easy tasks, some hard tasks, some long days. Uh, but he's a son, he's a shepherd. He was also a servant. You know, we find later that he served King Saul. Uh, there and primarily we find a couple other attributes uh, of, of David. He's a singer and a songwriter. Uh, he felt things very, very deeply. Uh, very, he, he was moved in, in ways in which you and I are, are moved. And, and he, he experienced all the different experiences of life. And, and, he, and he, he penned these things and he sings them and he tells about them. Um, he also was a soldier. That's another one of the, the main elements of King David. And he was placed as a captain in Saul's army. And he went out and did many valiant exploits. He, he was a soldier soldier. He had men underneath him. He drew really strong soldiers to himself because of his leadership skills. 
and he was indeed a captain uh, in, in the army. And he was a statesman of sort, as, as you see kind of the, his progression in his, in his career, in his life, and he became um, one to whom men looked for as a representative, as a leader, uh, a representative of the nation. And then finally, he kind of became the sovereign, shall we say. He was the king of Israel. He was anointed uh, by Samuel, um, by the word of the Lord, to be the leader of the nation of Israel. And now also, David was a sinner. He was just like you and I. He was not perfect, he failed. And so I have all these different areas of David's life that come into play here in the Psalms and even here in this Psalm. And, and that last aspect of David as a sinner, I think, has really direct implication here to this Psalm, Psalm 32. Um, because I think the occasion of this Psalm was written not long after his affair with Bathsheba. Uh, you, we see that also really heavily in Psalm 51. Uh, it says it explicitly there in the, in, the, in the superscript above the text. But if you compare Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, they speak of similar things. Uh, I think just looking at the two, that Psalm 51 comes first, and then days, weeks, months, years later, he pens Psalm 32 I think it's probably sooner than years, but, but I think that's the occasion in which Psalm 32 is written. It's on the heels of a great sin and of, and of a great forgiveness uh, and, and relief that he feels. So that's about David. You also see this, this is called a maskil. There's different types of psalms. This particular psalm, we are told here... It, is a masculine, which means it's a teaching psalm. It's, it's a psalm uh, that instructs us. And it instructs us um, several ways. And what does that mean? It means that we are to think about this, to th- consider, to, to contemplate. It's a contemplative song and psalm. We are to, to learn what this psalm has to, to tell us. It informs us things. It teaches us things. Um, and, and one of the things, one of the questions that we need to ask, especially when we consider a masculine, is what is God trying to teach me? What does the author, what has his experience been that I need to learn from? What does the historical context have to teach me about my contemporary life? What does God want to teach me in this psalm? And we're going to see several things in here uh, that the Lord, I think, wants us to learn. We're going to learn a lot about who God is and what He's done. And we, we learn that even through our own sin. David learns these things. But we learn about God's attributes of mercy and of grace. We learn about His, His truthfulness, His holiness. We, we learn about... God's justice, His demand for that sin be paid for. We learn about God's patience. And we are taught about the kindness of the Lord, the love of the Lord, the loving kindness 
about these are these are attributes of God, who God is, and we learned about that in this psalm. We also learn some of the things that this God has done, some the things that He's done in David's life. If you just follow the verbs throughout the psalm, you're going to see that that the, the works that God does are these things. He He forgives. He covers, he imputes, convicts, he listens, he protects, he preserves, he celebrates, he teaches, and he loves. And I'm quite certain that we could come up with more. But this is a psalm of David, and it's written for our instruction. So let's, let's read the text now. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Well, you see how this psalm begins. It begins, how blessed how blessed. He says it twice. It's a, it's a double blessing, we might say. Verses 1 and 2 here. How blessed. And, and the word blessed here um, is the word esher. It's similar to, if, if you remember, the, one of the sons of, of Jacob, his name was Asher. Similar word there. And we have, uh, I think it was Leah rejoicing. Uh, when, when he was born. But, but Asher, this word's used 45 times in the Old Testament. 26 of these are found in the Psalms. So we have over half of the usage of the word blessed are found in the Psalter. We have them used twice right here. So this is a really heavy emphasis on blessing, upon rejoicing, upon celebration and happiness. And, and you'll, you, you probably recall that the first usage of the, in the book of Psalms is Psalm 1. How blessed is the man. 
And here we have it again. So Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, and you find it also at the end of Psalm 2 as well. Blessed. So Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, they serve as the gateway, as the doorway into the whole book of the Psalter. And it begins with blessing. It begins with rejoicing and celebration. Coming into the presence of the Lord to worship. And, and Psalm 32 here, it begins with this, in this same way. It begins with rejoicing. It is a word of exclamation. You know, there's, there's not a whole lot of... <clears throat> um, well, there is punctuation, but the word itself here in the Hebrew is exclamatory. So whenever, if you have a translation that has an exclamation point at the end of these verses, that is, is showing the intent of the word blessed here. It is how blessed. It's, it's an exclamation here. And this is the, the doorway into this psalm. It's the gateway into it. This sets the foundation of happiness. It sets the foundation and the tone of the psalm. It's in the key of, of happiness, of rejoicing. It sets the foundation for us. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The Scripture calls the man blessed who is sinless. The man who is without sin. And he uses different words here to help us understand this word sin. He uses transgression. He uses the word sin. He uses iniquity. And he uses the word deceit. And they're all different perspectives, different connotations of the same thing. There is a a legal type of, of thing here, a transgression. You have trespassed. You have broken the law. You have gone somewhere you are not allowed to go. You have broken the rule. It's a legal term. It is also a moral term whose sin, it is a moral evil. Iniquity. There is also this perversion that is here. Something that is not right. That that in its origins... It is inherently wrong. It's a perversion of that which is good. And there is also a factual error here. There is this deceit, this guile. And these things are, they teach us about how deeply sin goes. It touches every area of our life, it touches our thinking, it touches our feeling. It touches our acting, how we live. It's a rebellion. It's an offensiveness. It's a perversion. It is a treachery. How deep sin goes. And David says that the blessed man, these areas of his life are now cleansed. And he is right before God. He's holy before God. This, this, these two verses are quoted for us in the New Testament in Romans 
chapter 4, I believe. Yes. When, when Paul is discussing imputation, he's discussing righteousness. David quotes, he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And he's, he's having this whole discussion on Abraham and how Abraham was justified before God, not on the basis of works, on the basis of faith and how God credited faith as righteousness. And, and we see here in verse 2, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. He's not counting it as sin. He's not crediting it to your account. It's not going into your jar. He's not imputing it to you. Blessed is the man who is sinless. How can a man, how can you and I be sinless? I mean, John, John speaks about this in, in his epistle in 1 John. And he says, No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. So David is writing something in seed form that we are now exposed to in its richness. He's writing about new life, being born of God. And if you look at this word, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. I mean, one of the first pictures that we have of this in the Scriptures is Adam. Is Adam and Eve. They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Obviously, that was inadequate. And God, He took an animal. He made skins to cover them, to cover their shame, to cover their guilt, to cover their nakedness and their sin. And it was a blood-bought covering whose sin is covered If we are not covered with the blood provided by God, then your sin is not adequately covered. What this means here, let's think about an analogy here. We have the scriptural one. Here is one which most of us probably have experienced. Consider your, your, your glass drawer, your cup drawer, your container cabinet and you go and you you want to to find a cup to to have some water maybe you maybe you don't have a water bottle you just have a jar and you and you want to take it with you and transport it somewhere and you're trying to find the right lid for the thing you put the lid on and it fits tight you can turn it upside down and no water comes out and you can't get anything else in if your sin is covered It's God who has provided this lid and He has screwed it on. And it's on tight. No more can go into the container. If, If you, if your vessel is this cup, 
There is no more sin that can go into it because God has given you the lid and He's put it on. Your sin is covered. And so whenever that that sin is poured out, it's not going to go into your jar anymore. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. It is not imputed into you any longer. Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. No deceit. That's how Satan came to deceive. He came as a deceiver. He came beguiling. There is no guile here. He came looking pretty, speaking sweetly, giving a grand argument, but it was beguiling. It was deceitful. It was in error. He said, Blessed is he in whose spirit there is no deceit, in whose very the fabric of one's being, of your essence, there is no lying. There's no deceiving. You know, we have a description um, of an individual. Let's see. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 gives us a description of one who is coming. One who is coming in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Deception. And how wickedness is deceiving. It truly is deceiving. It looks good. It smells good. It tastes good. It feels good. But it's deceiving. It is Lying. Lying wonders, lying signs, lying words, lying lips. And we come forth from the womb speaking lies. But these things, if you are born again, they are no longer you. They are not credited to your account. In whose spirit there is no Deceit, And I think it's quite likely that this is what the Lord Jesus was referring to when He saw, when He spoke with Nathanael, He says, Behold, I saw you. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. A true Israelite. A true Israelite. Behold, you are a child of God. I know you, Nathanael. I think it's quite likely that the Lord Jesus was pointing to this right here and saying, I know you, Nathaniel. You're mine. I have called you by name. There is no deceit in you. And I think it's, it's quite telling. I find it interesting that last week Chris spoke on hypocrisy. There is no deceit here. There is no hypocrisy here. How blessed. This is the entryway into this psalm. The man who is sinless. Now as we move into the next few verses, 
that's not the experience. And the implication is, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away, my bones grew old, through my groaning all day long. Silence here. David can speak of this blessing, of this rejoicing, because he knew the pain of not having his sin covered. Mm -hmm. He knew that pain. He knew how it felt here. When I kept silent, and notice it's very personal, when I kept silent, my body, my groaning, he owns it. This is after the fact. When I kept silent about my sin. In other words, when I wasn't acknowledging that I was sinning before you. When I refused to hear your voice speak to me. When I refused to read your word and to hear what you have written and said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. I refused to hear it. I refused to listen to it. And I was silent about it. I would not acknowledge it. What happened? My body wasted away. Our spirit and our body are entwined. They're woven together. When death happens, there is a tearing and a ripping apart. You cannot commit a sin in the body and have it not affect your soul and vice versa. They are connected. When we commit a spiritual transgression against the Lord God, it hurts a physical body. My body wasted away. My bones grew old. There is an aging here. Why is it that we age? It's the effect of sin. There's a failing here. What happens when, you're, when, when, you, when you get old? The strength leaves the bones. The moisture leaves the bones. The marrow why is it that oftentimes when an elderly person breaks their hip, that's it? They fail. They fail. They are consumed. It's eaten. There's a burdening here through my groaning all day long. My roaring, perhaps? My raging in my anger? Unconfessed sin leads to these things. It leads to, to anger. All day long, there's no peace. There's no rest for unconfessed sin. Why? For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. So not only is the weight of sin, the weight of lies pressing down upon you. Now you also, if you're a child of God, you have the hand of God pressing down upon you. It's a double weight. It is a pressure, an, in, an intentional pressure by God. Okay, you want to break my commands? You want to ignore the things that I have set before you, the things that you know are in, in error, things that are wrong? You're not only going to feel your own sin, but I am also going to press down upon you. I'm going to press in that spot that hurts the most. Why? So that you turn to me. So that you admit 
that I am God and you are not. Your hand was heavy upon me. All day long, day and night, no rest, no peace. God is a God who doesn't sleep. He is there pressing upon you, pressing it down. My vitality, my life, that moisture in the bones that keeps the the pliable from just snapping and breaking, there's life there, but it's drained away as with the fever heat of summer. You know those hot days, don't you? You're outside and you're working and you're toiling and whatever you're doing and maybe you are soaked to a sweat. We've probably all been there. I mean, you're just covered. But have you ever been outside on a hot summer day where you've soaked everything through and then it dries because of the heat? That's really hot. I've actually been there and it's really stinking hot. You see the salt on your clothing. It's starchy. It is crisp. It dries up and you are done. You know how it happens in the summer. Because you just come you just collapse when you come in. You're smoked. And David says that the weight of his sin, the weight of the conviction of, of, of the, the conviction of the Spirit upon him, it just sucked the life right out of him. It sapped him. Unconfessed silence. It sapped him. It just took the life right out of the tree. Now notice something here, Silah. Most of you have that probably at the end of verse 4. And that's a suspension. That's a pause. That's a break. Maybe it's a musical change in the note. Maybe it's just a, a pause for dramatic effect in, in the psalm, whatever that little note is that, where you stop singing just for a moment. That's what this is. It's a, okay, what did we just say? Let's think about this. What is this saying to me? There's blessing. There's great blessing to be had. But it's not found in unconfessed sin. It's not found in in hiding this. No, it's not found there. God's not going to let you rest. There's not going to be blessing there. Let's take a break. Let's think about this. What is God trying to teach me? And I find it appropriate that in verse 5 he says, Okay, I get it. I acknowledged my sin to you. I acknowledged it. I acknowledged my sin to you. And my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. He paused and he reflected. And he says, you are holy and I am not. He says... God, I'm wrong. The first step to happiness here is acknowledging that you are wrong. That you cannot provide the peace, the joy, the happiness that you desire on your own. You're just going to hide it. You're just going to cover it up. And that's what he says. He says, my iniquity I did not hide. That's like taking the jar and grabbing whatever lid you got and just trying to make it fit. If it's a little bit big, let me wrap some duct tape around it, put it on, 
I think that'll work. It's good enough. No. He says, I refuse to do that. I'm done doing that. Because I know it's going to fall off and it's going to spill everywhere. It's going to destroy my clothing, my, my vehicle. It's going to make me look like a fool. I'm done. My iniquity, I will not hide. I will not hide it. It's the same word that's used for cover in verse 1. He says, I won't do it. I can't do it. I quit. God, you must do it. You must cover my sin. I acknowledge it to you. I open it up. Here it is, God. Here is my sin. It's right here. Take it. Remove it. I can't do it. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. I will confess it. And I'm confessing it to the Lord. Scripture does say, confess your faults one to another, brethren. Be healed. I think it's in James. But, but ultimately, our sin is against the Lord. I will confess them to the Lord. It doesn't matter if your brother forgives you and God doesn't. You must be forgiven by the Lord. This teaches us that man is unable, unable to close the lid by himself. He cannot stop sinning by himself. Someone else has to put that lid on. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And we have this beautiful, beautiful passage here in, again in the book of Romans where he says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says... Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. You will not be disappointed. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you finally are willing to take the cup off and to just present it there on the altar and say, God, here it is. I'm I'm giving you everything. I'm exposing my entire being to you. You will not be ashamed. Your shame will be covered. Be covered. You can be right with Him. You can be right with Him. And that's what it says at the end of 5. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. God is faithful. He is so faithful. You forgave. He forg- that's God's prerogative. Who can forgive sin but God alone? You forgave my sin. My sin. You forgave me. And then there's a break again. What did we just say? What did I just acknowledge? I acknowledged my sin. I acknowledge, Lord, that I am a sinner. That I cannot hide it anymore. That I must confess. Your, your finger is weighing down upon me so heavily. Your hand is weighing down on me so heavily that I cannot remain silent anymore. I must have some relief. And you just relieved it. You just took it off. 
Praise the Lord. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach in. Therefore, listen, God is a great forgiver. He is a great forgiver. If you are a child of God, pray to the Lord. Pray to Him. Spurgeon wrote a a great sermon on this and talked about the many aspects of prayer. Therefore, let whoever is godly pray to you. Let him confess before you in a time when you may be found. Now that's interesting. In a time when you may be found. I think that God is found most easiest in the times of trouble. In the times of the floods and the torrents, and the downpours, and the darkening skies. That's when His light can shine through. That's when He can say, peace be still. There's not as much, so to speak, competition in the dark, heavy, horrible times. That's when He can be found most easily. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. When you are going through the most difficult, most tiresome trial some tiresome time that you've ever had, look to Him. Look to Him. You may be, he may be found there. He who seeks to me with His whole heart, I will let Him find me. I will let Him find me, He says. And the flood will not reach you. There is an ark. There is an ark in which you can run into. The Lord God is a shelter. He is a stronghold. He is a deliverer. He is a Savior. And that's what 7 tells us. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. He is that ark. He is that hiding place. He is that protection. He's that stronghold. You are my fortress, my deliverer. The Psalter says multiple times. Now we often think about a fortress or a castle as very very strong, like a, a, a bulwark. It's made of stone perhaps. Just impressive, massive thing. And inside it's just cold and dark and damp and, and, and devoid of beauty. It's just structure. But that's not what's being described here. There is this massive, impenetrable fortress of God. But it's not just dark and dank and just an existence on the inside. It's not like that. There is beauty, there's joy. And what does the end of verse 7 say? You surround me with songs of deliverance. You run to this castle, you run inside this, this fortress, and what's going on in there? It's a concert. Talk about a rock concert. That's what that is. You're inside a rock and you're having music festival. It's a concert. You're surrounded with songs of deliverance. Songs of deliverance. These two words, songs and deliverance, here in the end of verse 7, are the only uses of this in the Old Testament. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Songs of escape. Songs songs of rescue. Praise. Adoration. Joy. Joy. Jumping up and down. It's a party. Have you ever been to a party that doesn't have music? 
I don't think that I have. There's always music at a party. Now, there's a few passages here that I thought about as I'm thinking about God as being a protector, as being a a provider, as being a sustainer, as being a, a refuge and a fortress, a hiding place, a preservation from trouble. I think about Paul and Silas and they're in prison. And what are they doing? They're singing. They're singing and what happens? They... Are, they get escaped. They, they are rescued. They're released by God Himself. Surround me with songs of deliverance. Even in the midst of trial, in the midst of something that you're like, how in the world did we end up here? I'm doing God's will. Hey, you're surrounded by songs of deliverance. <clears throat> when... The Egypt, when I'm um, sorry, when um, the Israelites came out of Egypt, Pharaoh's hearts hardened one last time. He chases them down with the army, and they're running. They're they're probably terrified, going through the Red Sea, and they get on the other side, and the sea closes in and washes them away. What happens in Exodus 15? Then Moses and all the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Miriam's dancing and and playing her timbrel and singing. There is a song of deliverance. And if you read that, it's just rejoicing. Rejoicing in the salvation provided by God. And there's even rejoicing in judgment, but it's rejoicing in the salvation that's provided by the Lord God. Songs of deliverance. And interestingly, you find this same thing again in Revelation 15 when the wrath of God is being poured out you have the angels in heaven singing the song of Moses. I think about that, that hymn, uh, On Jordan's Stormy Banks I Stand, you know. Sing the song of Moses and the Lamb by and by. We're going to sing songs of deliverance. It's going to be a party, a big music festival. You surround me with these things. And this is salvation here. There was, there was this, the searching for God. Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. There's a searching for God. There's salvation for God. There's this a surrounding here and they're singing. They're singing. And then we move to verses 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So here we get this this masculine, this teaching, this didactic. uh, Excuse me. Some consider verses 8 and 9 as God interjecting into the psalm and saying, I will instruct you. Some argue that, say, no, it doesn't make any sense. It's David. Regardless here. There's instruction that's going on. And whether it comes directly from God or indirectly through David, it's still the words of God saying, I will instruct you. I will teach you. I'm going to counsel you with my eye on you. Looking directly at you. I know you. I'm going to counsel you specifically, personally. I know your thoughts. I know your feeling. I know your your history. I'm going to counsel you. I'm going to instruct you in the way in which you should go. I mean, bring up your children in the way they should go. And when they're old, they're not to depart from it. The Lord 
brings up His children in the way they should go. So that when they're old, they won't depart from it. I will instruct you. And then verse 9 is in a way an instruction. Do not be. Don't do this. Don't be stubborn. Don't be stubborn. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding. They are controlled by their senses. They're controlled by instinct. They don't have reason. They don't reason things out. You know, Isaiah says to us, Come, let us reason together. Let us reason. He says, Don't be like an animal. Don't be a mule, a hard headed, stubborn mule, an ignorant horse that just wants what he wants. Don't be controlled by your senses. whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. These animals, they're to serve men. But in order for man to serve, uh, get them to serve them, he's got to break their will. He's got to teach them, train them to obey his commands. And one of the ways that he does that is with a bit and with a bridle that goes in the mouth to ex- so that he can externally apply pressure on the inside. He can, there's external forces that are applying internal pressure to direct the horse. And the horse isn't doing it because he's reasoned through it. He's doing it because he's been trained to do it. He's basically a slave. He doesn't think. And that is what God tells us not to do. Don't do this just as as memory learned by rote. Don't do this as a slave without thinking. Now, interestingly, whenever we seek to be happy, when we seek to have fun, what do we turn to? Amusement. We turn to that which causes us to not have to think. But that's not what this psalm is about. He doesn't tell us not to think. This is an intentional psalm that, that instructs us to think. So he is saying, don't be like the stubborn horse and mule that have to be beaten. Don't act like an animal. You're not. You're man. You are above the animals. You're not one of them. Don't act like this. And I thought about um, <clears throat> what Peter said. If I can find it. Second Peter. When he is talking about um, false prophets, but these like unreasoning animals. Unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of these creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. And it just goes on and on and on and on. It's a parallel to Jude, but I find it very telling that Peter uses the word unreasoning animals. 
brute. You are not an animal. Don't be like that. And, and I think that one reason that David says that is because he recognizes that he was being a stubborn mule. And it was as if God saying, you, you are living like an animal. You are not living like a child of the king. And he continues and he says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Sorrows. Sorrows. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. David felt some of those sorrows. We've felt some of those sorrows, those sadnesses. Brought, about us, brought upon us by our own actions and inactions. Brought about us on the actions of others. Brought upon us by the, by the intentional actions of wicked men. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But remember, this psalm isn't written specifically primarily to the wicked. It's written to the child of God. But, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness, shall surround him. And this is the second surround that we have here. First, it was the songs of deliverance. And now we have its loving kindness. The lo- I love that word. You know, it's, it, it wraps together multiple attributes of God. His love, His kindness, His mercy, His grace. It just puts them all in one ball and says, loving kindness. The loving kindness shall surround Him. Who does it surround? He who trusts in the Lord. The wicked are surrounded by sorrows, but the child of God is surrounded by the loving kindness of the Lord. What's verse 10 saying? Well, I think it's saying the beauty and the joy that is found in the shelter from sin. The beauty, the joy, the rejoicing, the, the, the brightness, the lightness that's found in salvation. Because salvation is found in the Lord. Loving kindness by grace alone. To whom? To he who trusts in the Lord. Through faith alone. In who? In Christ alone. In the Lord. And verse 11 is, to the glory of God alone. There's rejoicing there. We have the five solas of the Reformation found in Psalm chapter 32, verses 10 and 11. The grace of God surrounds this once wicked, sinful rebel who was offensive before him, who was perverting his words, who was treasonous. And the grace of God reaches in and he puts a lid on that jar and he closes it and says, this is no longer you. 
I no longer credit your sin to your account. Your sin is cleansed. It's done away with. It's erased. Why is it erased? It's by the work of Christ and you believe in Him through faith alone in what He's done. And because of these things, we have verse 11. They're shouting here. And there's, there's, there's three commands. So this is the continuation of this instruction. Don't do this. Instead, do this, child of God. Be glad in the Lord. And rejoice, you righteous ones. And shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. So he tells us what not to do, and then he says, do this instead. Be glad. And the implication of this word is a brightness. A lightness of the face. His countenance brightened. His face shone like the face of an angel. Moses' face shone with the glory of God and had to be veiled. Be glad. Be glad. Why? You've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. Rejoice. Be glad and rejoice. Let your face just lighten up and be a witness in and of itself. And rejoice. And, and the, the implication here of this word is spin. So smile and spin. And this is not the same word when it says David danced before the Lord, although it's similar. But it's, it's that type of, of feeling where you're just you're jumpy, your feet are, are moving, they're dancing. I think about some of my, my, my children when uh, they're just excited and they're just running around and they're happy. Spin before the Lord. Smile and spin. Rejoice, you righteous ones. And shout for joy. Sing. Again, sing. And this is, has the same root as the word songs there in verse 7 with this rock concert, songs of deliverance. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. So there's a parallel here going on. Be glad, rejoice, shout, you righteous ones, you upright in heart. You're no longer bowed down with the weight of sin. You're, you've been, you're, it's, you're unencumbered now. You're no longer burdened. You've confessed it. You've confessed your sin. You've confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. You've repented before it. You've laid it out before Him and said, Take it. I'm done. And after that comes rejoicing. You know, after the weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. David, when, when after the death of that illegitimate child, he got up and he ate and he says he went into the house of God and he worshipped. He worshipped. This psalm, this is the doorway to worship. You want to be blessed? Be in the presence of the Lord God and worship Him. And if you look at the first verse of Psalm 33, sing for joy. Sing for joy to the Lord. There's this continuation of thought, a building of thought here. Indeed, 
Jesus Christ is our shelter from sin. Let's pray. Great God, Lord above, thank you that you have kept this holy word. Thank you, Lord, that you have caused your servant David to write this for us, to record it for us, that, um, that he knew you, that you knew him, that you saved him, that you allowed him to experience the joy of your salvation. Lord, the joy of forgiveness, even the joy of confession. Lord, we must confess before you that oftentimes we too are like these stubborn mules and just refuse to admit our error. We refuse to acknowledge your holiness, our sinfulness, our stubbornness. And Lord, please, please take this away. Please use this scripture, Lord, and apply it to our hearts, to our minds, to our, to our lives, to our families, to our church, to our, to our businesses, to, to our schools, to whatever it is. Lord, apply this to our life that, that we try not to be self-righteous, but rejoice in the salvation that you have provided. Rejoice in your deliverance. May we not run to slavery or to sin again but run to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, direct our eyes to Him, keep them upon Him, and may we ever rejoice in His presence. We thank You, Father, that, that You are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that You have promised us that You are with us to the end of the age, that You say, do not fear. Do not fear. That You say, come, come to Me. All who are weak and heavy laden. Lord, we have been heavy laden with guilt and with sin. And so we come to you that you may relieve us of this burden and restore to us the joy of your salvation. Lord, may we love you. May we worship you. Bless these people now. With your holy word, we thank you through the Lord Jesus. Amen.